0: Log
1: Talk Radio. Well, welcome everyone to this edition of Crime and Science Radio. We have a wonderful guest here uh, today, Dr. Mary Ellen O'Toole. Uh, The title of the show is Dangerous Instincts An Interview with Senior FBI Profiler, Retired Mary Ellen O'Toole, Ph.D. Uh, Mary Ellen has a resume that is scary, I mean it's, it's long, it's deep, it's wide, it's full of all kinds of things that especially Jan and I are interested in, and I know many of our guests are too, is what makes bad people tick. She's been a FBI special agent, uh, I think she has been in law enforcement for over 30 years, she was behavioral, uh, with the Behavioral Analysis Unit where she was a senior profiler for many years, She's been director of the Forensic Sciences Program at George Mason University, and she's the author of Dangerous Instincts, How Gut Feelings Betray Us, which we're going to talk about today. She's also editor-in-chief of Violence and Gender, which is a journal, and has a blog, uh, Criminal Minds, that appears on psychologytoday.com, and many, many more things, and you can read her complete bio on our various websites. So, Mary Ellen, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Oh, it's really good of you to join us.
2: Um, tell us about your background and how you ended up at the FBI.
0: Sure. It's, um, it's a little convoluted and a little straightforward altogether. So um, I always knew that I wanted to study or understand what goes on in somebody's head when they were committing murder. That was the f- almost my first memory, and I think it scared my mom, but... It was always something that I, you know, I just thought about and I wondered about. And uh, when I got older and, and was going to school, women couldn't be FBI agents because that was the rule of J. Edgar Hoover. So when I went to college, um, I studied psychology, but my goal at that point was to become either a lawyer or a mental health counselor, and I, I opted for the for the mental health. And I had a master's degree, but... I was just, I just, something was missing, and so I decided that I would go into law enforcement, and I do come from a law enforcement background, and um, eventually I got hired by the San Francisco District Attorney's Office as an investigator, and then was recruited uh, at that point into the FBI um, as an agent, and once you're in the FBI, and it still exists today, um, there's so much flexibility you can really decide do I want to be a polygrapher do I want to go on a SWAT team and for me it was still that that nagging interest of why do people murder why do they commit violent crimes? so fortunately at that point the um, behavioral sciences unit had been established and I, I voiced my interest in in becoming a part of that and Um, ultimately um, I you know I ultimately I I was selected and was able to promote back back here to the Washington DC area but it was a long haul and it takes a lot of training Um, but I also should tell you it's only fair that you know the rest of the story as to why I went into the FBI my mother was um, a secretary for J. Edgar Hoover for a number of years and my father was an FBI agent for about eight years. Wow! Wow!
1: Um,
2: so that's that's pretty amazing. Um, you talked a little bit about scaring your mother, who, if she worked for J Edgar Hoover, I don't know how she could be scared just even by your <laughs> interest in this. <laughs> but, but but what what attracted you to behavioral science itself you you sort of mentioned wanting to know the the why but was was that the foundation of it or were there other things about it that interested you
0: well that was certainly the foundation but i i chose to get my my bachelor's degree in psychology because again this interest in understanding people and their motives but not Everyday people, although we certainly learned a lot about that in the FBI, but I'm also always interested in the abnormal psychology, um, people that engaged in um, unusual behavior or you know abnormal behavior, but more specifically criminal behavior, because that was that was always something that fascinated me. Now. To be able to tell you that I got that idea off of TV, I really can't. Um, I was scared to death of scary movies. I still cannot stand the dark. It scares me to death. Um, So I can't really attribute it to something specifically. It's just that I have a fascination with people, and and I still do to this day. It's it's like I cannot get enough of understanding what makes people tick. And then you put it into a criminal context and – you know, now, now I'm completely um, engrossed in, in learning more and studying more. I just love it. Mm.
1: Well, since you decided to, to get into that arena of law enforcement, behavioral sciences, what kind of training did you have to go through to, to get from point A to point B?
0: Sure. Um, well, initially I, I went through the FBI Academy back at Quantico, and that's about a four-month police-type academy where they teach you to shoot and um, you take classes and um, uh, defensive tactics. Um, Then after, and it's very rigorous, uh, at least it was for me, but after four months you graduate and then the FBI sends you to the field office uh, they want you to work in. And for me, they sent me back to San Francisco. And I worked there for a couple of years and then bounced between the Phoenix FBI office and San Francisco's FBI office. And during that time, I had a caseload, um, I was assigned to the violent crime squad in San Francisco, I worked bank robberies and extortions, kidnappings, um, I worked um, um, cases with the local police department, whatever those might be, um, kind of assisting um, them. So that gives you a lot of experience, plus I came from a law enforcement background, I had already been nearly five years with the district attorney's office. So. I, with all that experience, that really helped me to, um, I think, move a little bit quicker to towards the uh, behavioral sciences program. And at that point, every field office in the country had what's called a profile coordinator. Um, it was an extra hat that you wore in addition to your caseload. But as part of that, maybe once or twice a year, um, you would go back to Quantico and take a, a one- or two-week-long course on profiling or child abduction, on serial murder, on um, product tampering, on you know explosives. And so over a course of about 10 years, I built up that kind of training um, and then started to teach courses myself. Uh, then once you go back to Quantico as a full-time profiler, uh you 're really enmeshed in training for um at least two years and you get the broadest type of training that you can imagine from sociology to um dna to um, uh, personality disorders mental health issues so you really do have a very good broad based foundation that uh, of training and it's specialized you can't there's no college course that you can take that would equal this kind of training. So it takes a long time, but what is really critical to become an FBI profiler is, is, is of course, having the academic foundation, but they were looking for and still do look for people that have a very strong investigative background so that when you come in, you've been to homicide scenes, you've interviewed a myriad of people, um, you've testified, you've done all the things that you know, a street agent or an investigator have done, and, and that's what was really important when they selected people to come back to the BAU
1: well, it brings up the question, you know, the, the, the behavioral psych unit, whatever you call it, has undergone a lot of changes in, in both its activities and its names, you know, the BSU, the BAU. It seems like it it changes. Um, people still call it the BSU, it seems, <laughs> very frequently. Can you tell us why why these changes came about in name and activities and why they were necessary? Sure, um, it,
0: because it is confusing and um I think thanks to programs like Criminal Minds, which always uses the acronym BAU, for a lot of people they, they they sort of mush it all together. Originally the unit was called the Behavioral Sciences Unit, and that was started in about 1972. And the purpose of that unit, which existed back at the FBI Academy, that unit was designed um, to... Um, have agents in it that would teach at the National Academy, and the National Academy is uh, is an academy that is set up for police executives that come in four times a year, over a course of four months, and they take a, a variety of courses from leadership to the behavioral sciences. So um, the agents in the BSU at the time were instructors, and then as part of part of their instructing they would talk to the police you know after class and officers uh, would come up and say hey i've had i got this case it's really interesting and so over time these agents in the BSU would start consulting on cases and they would get asked to give their opinion on on cases so the, it evolved to the point where several years later now, the BSU agents were instructors at the FBI Academy, but they were also consultants on cases. And then as, the, as kind of the demand for the behavioral sciences grew, It was decided that the uh, they would separate the two units, and the BSU stayed as primarily an instruction unit, and and then they created a new unit, and at that time it was called Investigative Support. Um, That name did not last long, exactly, and that that was not that was not destined to live long, but that was the uh, what ultimately became the profiling unit. and ultimately became the BAU. But that was the reason for it. It was really a to kind of cut the, the workload in two because it was becoming so demanding. So agents continued to teach. That was behavioral sciences. And then um, um, the other unit was the unit with the profilers.
1: Cool. That explains it.
0: So um, we've heard that the
2: unit was originally conceived to help define uh, serial predators and serial killers. Um, is, is that true? And what is it that makes serial killers in general so difficult to identify?
0: That is true. As, as part of the evolution of the BSU, um, some of the original agents um, in the unit, um, Agent Robert um, Ressler and Agent Roy Hazelwood and um, uh, John Douglas, all of whom have written numerous books, they decided it would be a good idea to um, do some research, to begin some research, and they decided that one of the things they wanted to do was to go into the prisons and interview people that had been convicted of, of murder. And some of these individuals in these prisons were actually convicted of multiple murders or were actually classified as um, serial killers. So over a course of a number of years, John Douglas and, and Bob Resser would go in with a you know survey or protocol, and they would ask these murderers questions about how they developed, how they committed the crime, how they thought they got away with it, questions that really become important if you're involved in an investigation. And from that research, they designed... Um, um, a classification system, and which is somewhat outdated at this point, but it was very good at the time. It was called the organized disorganized classification system. But it's from that original research that we began to see the um, that serial murderers were, um, you know, individuals that were different from the rest of 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 people that committed one or two murders because of their motivation, because of um, how they interacted with the victim, because of what they did at the crime scene. And it was from that research that I, we got a, a very good kickstart in terms of developing a, a better understanding of these individuals. And then at the same time, there were cases happening that that got all sorts of international recognition, and one of them was uh, Theodore Robert Bundy, who's really considered the poster child for serial murder. Um, and he was operating up in the Seattle area back in the um, 70s. Uh, a lot's come out about him since then, but one of the reactions to Ted Bundy was this. How in the heck did Ted Bundy, who has uh, escaped from a prison in um, Utah, how the heck did he get to, down to Florida to the Chi Omega sorority house where he killed um, a number of those um, young women plus a young girl um, without law enforcement even knowing about it? And for law enforcement, that was um, a very tough kind of come-to-Jesus moment that we can't have this happen again. So it was at that point in the early 80s that Terry Green, who used to be the commander in charge of homicide in the Oakland, California Police Department, a great guy, a man I know well, um, and he just um, put to, he, he was excellent and he was everything homicide. The FBI brought him back um, and he helped to put together what's called the VICAP program, which is the Violent Crime Apprehension Program. And the program is designed to accept um, reports from police agencies throughout the United States on solved, originally solved and unsolved homicides, and the, the computer system would match those cases that look to be connected, either by weapon or MO or by, by victimology, so that we, know, we would not have a situation again like we had with, with Ted Bundy, being able to travel across the country and police departments didn't talk to one another.
2: Well, I mean, this brings up um, something that I've often wondered about um, because we're told that serial killers are rare. I think in every seminar I've ever taken on the subject by experts, that's been one of the first statements that that got put out there. And the behavior is so extreme; um, you, you kind of hope that's that's. True or that it has to be true just because it's it's so it seems so aberrant, but given the number of unsolved homicides, which is much higher than I think most people believe, and the reluctance yeah. of some authorities to label killings as connected and other factors, um, there are people out there who think that we might be underestimating the number, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, especially. Um, given the number of unidentified dead and the poor training of coroners and all these other kinds of factors, do we really have a good handle on the number of serial killers?
0: We're, we have a much better number today, but um, I would agree with you that particularly back in the 70s and 80s when we saw a what we think was a, a real peak in serial uh, murder cases, that um, there were a number of reasons why law enforcement was not able to connect these cases together. Um, but I And I don't know why um, sociologists still kind of ponder that question. Why do we think they spiked in, at that time frame and we see less here? But let me offer you a few suggestions and ideas. And, and some of the variables that you mentioned could certainly play a role in this. Right now, the the definition established by the FBI, which sounds somewhat arrogant, um, but it it was a a definition that was agreed upon in 2005 when we brought together all the world's experts in serial murder, um, actually down in um, San Antonio, Texas. And it was decided that the definition would be an individual who kills two or more people over a period of days, weeks, months, or years. So the threshold to be... Uh, classified as a serial murderer is really quite low, um, so that that certainly I think um, ca- ends up capturing a lot of cases that that years before we we would not cont- put in that box of a serial killer. Um, you mentioned that a lot of law enforcement agencies are hesitant to apply that label to that individual, and that's very true, and I'll tell you why, at least while the individual um, is active, because it puts the fear of God in the public. And unless you're really sure, uh, cases, for example, if they're not connected through uh, DNA, for example, law enforcement is very hesitant to put that, um, it's almost like putting a... um, you know, lighting a fire in your community because it does, it just scares people. And if you don't have to do it, um, our recommendation from the FBI was you don't want to do it until you're absolutely sure. So there's a great, it's a great deal of responsibility for a police chief to do a press conference and say, we have a serial killer in our city. So we say to be very careful and be very confident and and certain that that's, that that's what you have, and it's too often that we, we do find victims um, after they've, for example, particularly after they've been left outside and their bodies have been so badly decomposed or perhaps they're skeletonized, it's very difficult to say that this, this, the body of this person is likely to be part of a series. There's just no way you can say that with any kind of um, um, certainty. Uh, so we we can 't include those in a series. we can say we think that they 're part of it, but you can never you just can 't say for sure because you you would be exploiting the numbers um, so that 's why it's it 's probably uh, it 's been underestimated but here 's the good news since we have the DNA and now in in prisons throughout the United States, and I know in California um, there were lawsuits over this but now the courts have allowed law enforcement to go into prisons and to go, say, on death row or other, in other units within prison and take DNA samples. And from that, we've been able to decide that Joe Blow, who's on death row, let's say, in California, now matches the DNA that was an unknown sample from northern New York for many, many years. So now through DNA were able to match people that um never even came up on the radar screen back in the nineteen eighties as being um the serial murderer that was unknown for all of those years. But when you put that label on to somebody um in law enforcement we have to be very, very careful that um that, that is absolutely supported by um, by strong uh, forensic evidence, and it really does need to be DNA evidence because the impact on the community is so profound
1: great explanation uh that 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 's beautiful. I like that because it has been confusing. It used to be three or more people and and they even talked about motivations and the definitions and all right. that and they really flattened it. <laughs> Um,
0: yeah it has to be simple but right. yet it has to be meaningful so um, I think that that we we concurred on this definition back in 05 some people are not happy with it because they right. think the number should be higher but um, it's workable at this point it's not perfect but it's workable
1: well obviously you know these people aren't well uh, these serial predators but sociopath, psychopath, personality disorder—that's what they've all been called. What's the real difference, or is there one?
0: Okay. yeah. Here's the real deal, and it's a great question. And now you've hit on my passion. Um, again, at this 2005 conference, we talked about what what's ma- what does it. Um, that sets these individuals apart and what makes them tick, and it was our consensus, and not empirically, but um, it was the general consensus of these international experts that most um, serial killers, serial sexual killers, because you know there are other uh, types of um, serial killers, like angels of Mercy, um, a hit man. People that run in gangs—they, if they've killed two or more people—they class, they're classified as serial killers as well. But in talking about serial sexual killers, those individuals who are motivated by for sexual reasons to, to commit murders, our consensus was that at 95 to 99 percent of them would um, fall under the category of uh, or meet the criteria of a psychopath. Now. A psychopath is the new term for sociopath. Sociopath is a term that was thrown out in the mental health um, dust pen in 1968. People still use it, and they still, you know, even use it in court, which is – which is really a big no-no, but the new term is a psychopath, and the world's expert in what a psychopath is is Dr. Robert Hare from um, from Canada, and he designed over the 40 years of empirical research, which means he studied the brains of these individuals. He developed um, a test. It's called the Psychopathy Checklist Revised, and this checklist is something that we use both in mental health and in law enforcement to assess if an individual has the these twenty traits of psychopathy and psychopathy is a personality disorder. that means it's not a mental illness. The scary part of that definition is this: these are people who are not crazy. These are people who know right from wrong. Um, so these are people that that choose to go out and murder people. But by definition, a psychopath is someone that has no remorse for what they do. They have no conscience. They have no empathy. They're very grandiose individuals, but they're glib and charming. Um, I only met one serial murderer who was kind of a a dud. The rest of them are funny, (laughs) delightful, great sense of humor. And I promise you that if you met them in a pub or a restaurant or on a train, you would never know what they – you know, what they did in their secret life. But that's the distinction between sociopath, that's an old term, these are individuals who fall under the definition, we believe, of um, a psychopath, uh, which is a personality disorder, which means they're not crazy, which means they're in touch with reality, uh, but the rules of society just don't apply to them, in their opinion.
1: Wow, that's, uh, you know, even the great Anne Rule, you mentioned Ted Bundy he was fooled by him all those years, and she sat right next to him and knew him well, and and she grew up in law enforcement, so uh, yeah, she they're, did,
0: they're she did, and
1: recognize.
0: I and I know Ann, and um, you know, it saddens me so that she's passed away, but exactly. Ann and I became friends, and she told me that she was, she sat on the uh, the hotline, and and think mm-hmm. put this in perspective, Ann Rule, who was a police woman. Because at that time, women were called police women, not police officers. She sat on a hotline, a suicide hotline, at midnight. And people would call in who were depressed, who were thinking about killing themselves. And sitting next to her was Theodore Robert Bundy. Taking calls from depressed people, and when you think about that it's chilling that you're on the phone because you're depressed and maybe contemplating suicide and what you 're doing is actually talking to a serial killer. But what Ann told me was he would walk her to her car after the yeah. shift was over, and he he um she never suspected him, but when her daughter was with her, if her daughter came to work or was there when she walked her car, um, or walked to her car, she later told me, she said, I was, now in hindsight, I, I saw that his attention kind of went to the daughter in a way that at the time didn't make her uncomfortable, but in hindsight, she said, I saw something there.
1: Wow. Yeah, she's very candid about it. She's, I, I really miss Annie. She, she's fantastic, but, uh, uh, The Stranger Beside Me is her book. If any of you want to pick it up and read it, it's the story of her and Ted, so to speak, and it's, uh. It's fantastic. Uh, I think her and father was read. also chief of police or something.
0: Uh, I think so. I think uh, but she her book—that
1: oh. world and so and that these one, people aren't book. easy to recognize.
0: <laughs> no, and Anne's probably one of the sharpest people I've ever met. Yes. But that book—if you want the hair in the back of your neck to stand up—that yep. book—but it's a it's a, a it's a must-read as far as I'm concerned. All I of her agree. books are.
1: Yeah, they're wonderful. Well, you've worked on many, many famous cases. Do you remember your first high-profile case and what that was about and how you got your feet wet, so to speak?
0: Well, I would say um, some of my first high-profile cases were were more local because I was an agent in um, in San Francisco, and at the time we had – A series of um, kidnapped children out of the San Francisco Bay Area and some of them are not solved to this day Uh, and they they occurred in the late 80s into the early 90s so uh, those became um, regionally they became very high profile and then we had the Polly Closs case and Polly was kidnapped out of her home Um, I believe it was in 1993 and it took us three months to find her and we did um unfortunately richard allen davis who's who's been convicted of her murder and is on death row uh was the person responsible for it and it was um it was a heart heartbreaking case it was um an exhausting case it was tragic um it it, it was everything and it happened right right about this time actually and um that got a lot of attention nationally because it, it had so many unusual features to it, including the um, offender walking right into her home and taking her right in front of two witnesses and walking out. And part of the reason that he was able to do it, he was um, a very interesting person, was because when you met him in person, I mean, he had his issues, but um, he, he 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 wouldn't have jumped out at you as as being um this awful monster type person and what was interesting is that he he was not a registered sex offender in California he had a prior record uh but his crimes were against adult women they weren't against um girls as as young as as Polly so that was i think Polly's case would have been the first one
1: uh you mentioned that that it had a lot of ramifications and a lot of confusion mm-hmm. to it. What what was what case did you work on that you find the most problematic, the one with the most confusing issues?
0: Well, all of my cases had confusing <laughs> issues, <laughs> um, and they were demanding, and they were there. Were, there were none that were straightforward. And the reason that I say that is, in the BAU when I started back in in 1995. We got the worst of the worst, but we also got the cases that um, were described as cases that uh, where the police officers just kind of hit the brick wall and they needed to brainstorm with with somebody that worked these cases every day, so they were just fraught with issues and fraught with problems. so I would certainly say that um, all of my cases fall under that that category but so when I look at the one that had the most problems um i probably would i don't know that i could say the one with the most problems i think one that had some of the greatest challenges um included the green river uh murder case up in in seattle um and then there were single cases um there were cases involving you know mass murder that they created their own set of um of issues so it um they all did. I mean they all there was none that was easy. There were never any what they call what is that term in baseball? Ground balls. There were never any of those. <laughs> yeah.
1: mm-hmm. They were line drives. Yeah.
0: Okay. You could exactly, probably yeah. <laughs> tell <laughs> I'm not a big sports person. No,
1: no, that's, no ground <laughs> balls are easy. Line drives will take your head off sometimes. <laughs>
0: okay, well that happened you too. Right. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs>
1: exactly.
0: <laughs> Two
2: famous cases that you were involved in were never solved, uh, the Zodiac yeah. uh, and the Monster of Florence. Tell us about yeah. each of those and why they've never been solved.
0: Yeah, those are two fascinating cases, aren't they? So mm. Zodiac started in 1968 um, out in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, and the Zodiac... Um, killer killed until um 1969 but and and there's an interesting um um but at the end of that the murders occurred around in in the northern california suburbs and then there was one murder in san francisco of a taxi cab driver but those cases at the time were not connected. Uh, law enforcement wasn't connecting them to um, to one another. And, again, this was pre-VICAP and it was pre-DNA and it was uh, law enforcement just, they just weren't speaking to one another. Um, so those murders went on and then it stopped for a while, but then things kind of turned a little strange and an individual started to communicate with Um, a person um, in the San Francisco Chronicle and started to have a conversation of bragging about being the Zodiac killer. So it took on a whole new sort of persona at that point um, that now this person had injected himself back into into the investigation. And law enforcement was not... um, really used to seeing that kind of arrogant, brazen type of behavior. They never solved it. And I think part of the reason that they didn't is is because um, of, of forensic science and where we were at that time. And I also think maybe it was because um, law enforcement – did not speak to one another to share information on cases and these cases would have been behaviorally um difficult to connect the ones up in the northern the northern counties those were those would have been behaviorally connected um but the one with the cab driver that that behaviorally at that time that would not have been connected now what's kind of interesting about zodiac back in i think it was i was still working at the district attorney's office out of nowhere, a letter comes in to the, to I believe the the detective or the police chief who had working who had worked the case, and the movie was actually um, done on on the detective that worked the case, and at the time, um, they never connected it to Zodiac. But the fear was, oh my God. Zodiac is back in he's back in the Bay Area or it's it's starting all over again and that would have been like about in 1978 we had one unconnected letter um, that was signed the Zodiac Killer which again you asked me a previous question about um, calling somebody a serial killer Uh, they were very reluctant to put that out because it would just have caused a firestorm of fear so right before I left to come back to uh, to the BAU, I was working with several departments um, that had had a, a murder committed by the unknown Zodiac, and at that time, I, we thought we had a very good suspect and we were getting ready to to do a behavioral interview of this person um, but they but they died before we were, we were able to do it. so the question now is, was that the real zodiac? I can't tell you that because I don't know, but I do think the case is still open, and I do think with the the state of the art of DNA, at some point we will know forensically who this person is. But but I think most people will agree at this point he's probably dead. We're not 100% sure, but we we, we think that he is. And then the Monster of Florence, that case had some similar um, patterns to it, this case, again, it started kind of at the same time, and it, it went between 1968 and 1985. So the case was sent back to Quantico, the FBI Academy, when I was still an agent just going back and forth several times a year to do, um, to receive training. And it was at that point that um, I was asked to uh, participate in writing the profile of the case now called The, the Monster of Florence. And this was somebody that, um, also went to Lover's Lanes, which is what the Zodiac did, um, went to Lover's Lanes and targeted um, couples that were parked in a car. And he would come up behind them um, using a particular gun that they matched um, to all the scenes, and it was a, um, I think it was a 22 caliber uh, uh, Beretta. Um, and they were able to make that match um, with all the victims. And then one of the victims, um, he had mutilated with a knife that they had determined was a very unique style of knife. But again, um, despite the profile and despite um, the recommendations that w- w- that we had made when we did the profile, and, again this would have been in the late uh, the late 1980s. The case is still un- unsolved, and I'm you know I can just offer a, a couple of ideas of why I think that one because I think that there was more behavioral evidence there possibly more forensic evidence because it was in a tighter geographic area. But the state-of-the-art forensically was not there. Um, and, but today with DNA, if they still have their evidence and it was packaged correctly, um, they can go back and take a second look at that, and hopefully, uh, detectives will. That case is also likely to be resolved in the future because if if uh, DNA is incredible that, and that technology has evolved so amazingly over the last ten years, it's so sensitive. Many of these closed cases, I think, are going to get resolved. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll hope
2: so. Uh, that one had, um, I think. Twists and turns on both sides.
0: That's the question. You know what? I, it, what so interesting on the monster of Florence? The prosecutor on that case was the same prosecutor on the case of um, the young woman that was um, arrested for uh, for murder. She was a student and she went to Italy. And um, uh, Amanda Knox. He was a he was the same prosecutor, and when I, I went back and I looked at my file, as I watched Amanda Knox, Knox's case on television, and I, I listened and I thought, "My gosh, it's the same prosecutor." Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Doug Preston got caught up in that when he was over there. They arrested him, and Spizo, his uh, the, the Italian investigative reporter, and charged them as being a monster of Florence at one time because they were researching new more than the police. And Doug has a long story about being interrogated by these guys. It's just scary. And uh, he was interrogated for a couple yeah. of hours. Amanda Knox was interrogated for like 11 hours. So, you know, and she was a kid. But uh, it's,
0: It was stunning. Yeah, it was stunning when he, when he was right. Yep, that was unbelievable. So that one did have um, politics involved in it. Oh, yeah. And that always becomes messy.
2: Yeah. Well, a little earlier you mentioned Gary Ridgeway, that people may recognize the name more as um, as these submarquets that get attached in all of these, you know, higher profile um cases as the Green River Killer. Um mm-hmm. who you know, I think this is one of those um cases that can teach us many things. So so tell us about um, that case.
0: Well, Gary Ridgway. I, I I interviewed Gary for over uh, a period of of weeks, and so spent a lot of time with Gary. Gary started to murder up in the Northwest, um, in the Seattle area, probably starting in the late 1960s. Um, and let me underscore late 1960s. And then he was finally arrested in 2001. And that should be very scary. Right. This individual was in his day in his day job. He came across. He we call it. He flew under the radar screen because um, he had all the trappings of normalcy in his everyday job. So what Gary did was he would frequent an area of Seattle where you had women who were. Um, offering sex for money. And he was known to law enforcement as, as being a john in that area. And at the time, there was quite a task force set up called the Green River Task Force. And the, the title of that was based on the fact that there were five bodies initially of, of women initially found in the Green River, and they were, um, they were recovered and they had a lot of evidence on, on those bodies, and that ultimately became important. But only only years later, law, law enforcement realized that more and more women were going missing from uh, this one particular area of Seattle. Back in uh, 1987, as this was going on, the detective in charge of this case, this is an interesting kind of backstory, he started off his, his career as a brand new police officer on the Green River case and um 30 plus years later he was still assigned to the case his name is Tom Jensen an amazing detective tom called gary Ridgway into the police department and basically wanted to give gary have gary take a polygraph exam and gary did and um he didn't he he was either inconclusive or he passed it so at that point um then tom did something very unusual at the time it was probably considered a little weird, but he took a buccal swab of the cells from inside of Gary's mouth, which is now what we do when we collect DNA. But this was nineteen eighty seven when we did when DNA was as a technology was unknown and Tom stored it correctly and in two thousand and one he took that swab and he sent it up to the Washington State Lab. And he and the sheriff at the time, um, Dave Reichert, who worked that case from day one to to the time Gary was arrested, who's now Congressman Dave Reichert, they were in their offices together, and the lab report came back, and Tom told me, (laughs) he said to the lab person, do not tell me that the Green River killer is Gary Leon Ridgway. And they said, the killer is Gary Leon Ridgway. Because Tom Tom knew that, but here's the issue. At the time, again, the forensic evidence was not there, and we weren't finding the bodies. We knew women were, were missing, but they weren't finding the bodies. So they went out and they arrested Gary at a job where he worked for 30 years and most people think that serial killers can't hold down a job he worked there for 30 years at the comp- at his company and he was married to his wife at the time for um for 18 years and again uh, people think that that these are men who who are not in in long term relationships. So Gary was able to fly under the radar screen for one long period of time before uh, before he was identified. But it was because of the dogged work of of um, I think Tom Jensen and the task force out there that that this case was ultimately resolved. And it's interesting because in talking to Gary. Gary told me at one point um and he talked to uh, you know the whole investigative team so we all have our different stories we can share but he told me at one point he was kind of getting tired and he was going to kind of retire from serial murder and he was going to get a winnebago and he was going to drive it across country you know with his wife who didn't know anything about what was going on and i'm thinking to myself oh dear lord He's now going to take his crime wave and, and, um, okay, he's getting older, but he's still a pretty strong guy, and he's going to now drive drive around Mm. the United States um, as a retired guy. The Mm. interesting thing about this, and I think that this sort of sums up the quality of of the prosecution and the law enforcement effort, once Gary was arrested, we still had um, double-digit women missing, uh, more than 50. So the prosecutors met with the victims' family, and they said, "Look, uh, we've been approached by the defense attorneys, and who were who were uh, extraordinary, and we're prepared uh, to offer Gary a plea agreement, which means that we would take the death penalty off the table if he takes us to the remains of his other victims." But they gave the families of these women, who were mothers and daughters, and Ants, and they said, But what do you want? We can charge him and we'll get a conviction on the five women uh, whose remains were found in the Green River, uh, or, and we'll get a conviction and we're going to ask for the death penalty. But if you want us to accept this plea agreement, which means he can plead to life in prison um, if he takes us to the remains of all of these other women, and the family said, Yes, we want our loved ones home. So a lot of people said that the prosecution made a, made a deal with the devil. And in reality, the prosecution made a deal with the devil because uh, the families wanted their loved ones home. And and that's the hard reality of these cases. And ultimately, Gary uh, pled guilty to 49 homicides in one county, one county in um, the state of Washington. And that plea agreement is only applicable to one county. So did Gary ever drive outside of the Seattle area? Of course he did. Mm -hmm. So does he have more victims? Um, I think we all believe that. Of course he does.
2: Well, as as somebody who's been involved a lot with missing persons cases, I can tell you that you you can't underestimate the value of letting those other families know what happened to their loved ones. I mean, isn't that true? You know, that has ripple effects. And, And as you were speaking about this, I... I also know a forensic anthropologist who is involved in that case, and I think we we don't often see the effect of not solving these what it has on investigators who who want so much to to resolve this it's 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 hard on people
1: um.
0: It, it takes its toll, doesn't it? it, it and certainly the families are our primary concern because it creates what I call generational damage to a family who did nothing wrong. But the damage is generational. But it takes its toll um, on a detective, um, a probation officer, you name it, anybody that's worked these cases because they'll work to, to, their, to, to their death to solve mm-hmm. it. Sometimes they can't.
1: Mm-hmm. and i think i read mm-hmm. that if if they were to find another case that they could connect gary to that it would negate his plea bargain because i think part of the deal was he had to confess to everything he had done and only,
0: uh, in, only in only in king county but okay. you are right okay. because if let's say they they find um remains of someone in spokane right. or um you know anywhere in between and they can link that victim to Gary, the prosecutor in Spokane County yes. can file murder charges and attach the death sentence to that right. um, to that murder, so you are a hundred percent right on that
1: well let 's keep our fingers crossed <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you know there are more victims out there, and yes. that's the, yeah like like you were saying that 's our priority is is to um, you never give a family closure that the c word closure is not applicable. In um, any crimes of violence, um, as you both know, um, because you you can't families never get closure. But what they want is to understand and to know what happened, and 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 that's I think that's what they tried to do here. Yeah.
2: Well, I and and also just sometimes being able to to bury the remains of a loved one, I think people. Because in our families we expect to be able to do that. We don't think about what happens to people who can't do that. Oh, um, and I know. And even if they may assume at, on one level that that person is dead, there's <laughs> hope can be kind of cruel, <laughs> you know, in and in, in oh, making people think, really? well, I don't know, I don't know, you know.
0: So right, um, you're exactly right.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, and. These aren't the only kinds of of cases, though, that get involved. So, to kind of switch gears a little, you've also consulted on school shootings and mass uh, shootings. So, what makes those cases um, compelling? And what kind of person does that? That's kind of a, a different individual,
0: right? It it is. It it really is a very different um, uh, motivation, a different personality, oftentimes. And I will tell you this the the first time that we um, began to see this kind of a phenomenon happening would have been in the mid to late eighties. Now, yes, we had a few cases that predated that time but and I know this because I did the fbi 's research on um, mass school mass shootings at the time. But when you go back in history to take a look at what the heck is going on here we 've got young males going into schools and shooting not for robbery or over a girlfriend or a boyfriend they're going into schools and killing teachers and other students without any kind of an apparent motive you really had to go back to um Charles Whitman at the University of Texas, we've just had the 50th year anniversary, who, in 1966, he went to the top of the tower, and he, over a period of 90 minutes, Charles Whitman shot and killed people he did not know, killing in excess of, I think it was, um, what was it about, he injured and killed over 30-some people. Yeah,
1: I think um, he killed 14, 15, 16, somewhere in that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It was terrible, and we never saw, we didn't see carnage like that at the time, um, and people didn't understand it, and at the time, and we still have to live with this, although um, I've had the chance to study that case with the police who actually <clears throat> went to the top of that tower and actually shot and killed Whitman, um, we, we said at the time and that it was the brain tumor that caused him to, to engage in this predatory instrumental violence. And I think we're still doing it today. We still try to make excuses um, in a medical sense for why people act out in a violent way. In a violent way. So jump ahead now into the 80s and and into the 90s. um, I started the research project. I actually opened it up in in about 1995 and started to take a look at all these cases that involved young males going into these schools and and shooting people. And then um, I was sort of taking my my time because I had to work cases. Then all of a sudden we had Columbine. And Columbine shook everybody to its core because of the level of sadistic violence um, and multiple weapons, and it was so cold-blooded and so predatory. The day that Columbine occurred, we got a call into the uh, BAU from the Attorney General, and at that time it was Janet Reno, and she said, what can your unit do to um, help us get a develop a better understanding of why the heck would somebody do something like this. So uh, several agents and I put together um, a conference out in Leesburg, Virginia, and it was a very secret conference because a lot of the cases that we um, were looking at still had civil suits that were pending. So we had people from, we identified all the cases that had occurred with this kind of behavior between the mid-'80s up to um, the time of Columbine and we brought it back the uh, people that knew their shooters. We didn't want just a school administrator. We wanted people that knew the shooter, um, that were there that day, that had worked the case. And for a week, we talked about these cases and what was the motive and what's happening and why is this happening. We hadn't seen this before. And it was an amazing conference. And from that, we were able to make some, um, you know, some – Conclusions, and certainly they weren 't empirical because we had under twenty cases at that time, but we were able to to look at um, some things in the in that in the shooter 's background that we thought would be helpful for um, to educate people regarding the next case and and those things are still applicable today because we're we were suggesting that we can 't tell you that the next shooter is going to be um, you know, a white male whose name first name is also, you know, Eric Harris, or who has purple hair or who listens at the time to M- Marilyn Manson, because that was the fear that the FBI is going to create this profile. But we said, look for the warning signs before these shootings occur. Um, and that's still applicable to this day. And now the shootings have, though, become almost um, – they 're now metastasized to our culture, which is very scary because that what I mean by that is is this:
2: um,
0: They have absolutely no simple solution, absolutely no simple solution and could we have done something about it twenty years ago, it would have been much easier to do something twenty years ago, but we didn 't and then, to complicate things, we have this a variable called the internet that now allows people to communicate and to dive deep into um, any kind of pathology that they want to, to normalize their thinking about, well, if I don't like something, I can grab a gun and and go to shoot somebody. But what we are seeing now is even with lone wolf shooters, we're seeing um, that primarily these are young males and primarily these are young males between the ages of 17 and 30. And, and, primarily the these these are crimes that they can have different elements um to it but but now you, compared to the 1980s I mean, these are crimes where um we're seeing the motivation being becoming maximum lethality wanting to kill as many people as possible taking the long barrel guns in um and more ammunition that they that Uh, than they can possibly even carry. Um, And so I'm seeing the motivations change from what I saw in the 80s to now becoming um, more the Columbine style. And to me, this is very frightening because the shooters today were born into this culture. Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, the shooters at Columbine, they weren't born into this culture. They grew up on House on the Prairie TV programs. That's not the case now. So we now have a huge problem
1: well, they created this culture, basically. <laughs> Those two clowns. It's a, yeah. it's a,
0: it's a culture of violence. So, and violence in everything. It's violence in music and games and movies and um, everything. You, video games. It's violence in everything. And at the conference in 1999, the one thing we talked about was violent videos. And and those weren't even really a big deal at the time. The, hell, the Internet wasn't a big deal at the time. Right. And we learned that these um, most of the shooters back then were spending an incredible amount of time in games that would now be considered nothing, you know, Pretty neutral, and they were already at that time. The shooters we were looking at were spending eight to ten hours a day on very what would now be considered fairly benign. So now things have advanced, and things have have gotten. Young people are now even more influenced um, by you know by all of these things that are that are contributing to the ideation and the fantasy. And now it it really has morphed into something far more um, difficult to manage.
1: Well, we've got a couple of minutes left, and I want you to tell us a little bit about your book, Dangerous Instincts, and uh, the journal Violence and Gender. What do what are, what are readers and listeners need to know about that?
0: Well, I'll start with the book, um, and I wrote the book to give back to the public, because I, I feel like I had had such a great opportunity to work for the FBI, the greatest law enforcement agency I think in the world, and I thought, how can I give back to people? And this book, in this book I talk about um, how to really how to understand violence, how to read people, um, how to read situations, and not every situation, but um, if you're going to bring somebody into your comfort zone or you're deciding whether or not to make a major decision in your life, how do you do that and not... Make yourself vulnerable to being um, exploited or um, taken advantage of, so I, I I basically walk the public through. Um, kind of the methodology that we used in the FBI to assess people for dangerousness and even assess situations for, um, you know, for dangerousness so that people wouldn't rely on things like, well, he's dressed nice or she has a nice smile, and those are the trappings that we all too often use to determine whether or not somebody could hurt us. So um, the book is about how to empower people, and I know empowered is kind of an overused word, but I I wanted to give back. And the journal is fantastic. Uh, The journal was um, conceived by uh, Marianne Liebert, who um, has um, a huge body of scientific journals. And and as she was looking into the culture of these mass shootings back in 2012, 2013, she she, she told me she felt that, we needed to study this, what's going on. And so she named the journal Violence and Gender before she had an editor-in-chief, and they reached out for me. Um, And one of the premises was that, why is it that these young males seem to be inordinately involved in these kinds of crimes? What is it that causes this behavior, but particularly in young males? And then the journal has just taken off since then, and it's appealing to um somebody that is <laughs> I mean, in college, to somebody that stays at home, to an international scientist. So we cover all areas of violence, um, across the board, even sexual violence. And we try to we use topics that are very timely because it's important. If somebody reads about something on the front page of the newspaper, I want I want them to read about it in the journal.
1: Uh-huh. Well, this has been beyond fascinating. <laughs> yes. This has been yes, wonderful. We, we could go on for another hour, I guarantee you. Maybe we'll have to do this again. Oh, thank
2: uh, you. I would love to appreciate it.
1: But thank you so, so much. And as our readers know, there'll be links to other reading and the Mary Ellen sites and books and blogs and all that stuff on, on our various websites. So be sure and do that. And, Mary Ellen, Thank you so much for a wonderful hour of discussion.
0: Oh, it's totally my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, thanks, thanks for being here. We'd love to have you back again. It's,
1: it's absolutely. Uh, until next time, you. that's this edition of Crime and Science Radio. Thanks for listening.